Letter number 16 of Letters from Hell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Letters from Hell by Valdemar Adolf Thisted. Letter 16. In Italy, the glories of nature reach their perfection at Eve. My mother, not being very much of a walker, Lily and I would stroll about by ourselves. Venus, Florence, Naples, enchanting memories. Not now, I mean, but in the days of life. Those Italian evenings were an indescribable mixture of beauty and delight, nature a very cradle of peace, and peace speaking to my soul. For I had Lily with me, and no matter what scenes of humanity might surround us, she and I seemed alone at such moments. The most perfect delights I tasted at Florence. We visited the Pisa del Granduca, the center of life in that city. Surrounded by magnificent buildings, the place radiant with light, you feel as though you had entered some lordly hall, gigantic in size and of royal splendor, roofed over by the starry sky. Here you see that ancient palace, with its grand medieval tower, which has looked down upon many a stormy gathering in the days of the Republic, upon Dante too, Michelangelo, Savonarola. In front of it are two colossal statues, David and Hercules, not far distant on the very spot tradition says where a savonarola suffered death on the pyre a fountain sends up her sparkling jets guarded by tritons and fawns and surmounted by a figure of neptune the ruler of seas again a little farther stands the equestrian statue of cosmo di medici cast in bronze a masterwork by giambologna on the opposite side, a flight of steps, presided over by a pair of antique lions, leads you into the glorious Logia di Lanzi. Here, by the light of lamps, you behold some of Italy's noblest treasures of art. Perseus the Deliverer, by Benvenuto Cellini, Judith and Holofernes, Hercules and the Centaur, the famous marble group by Giambologna, representing the rape of the Sabines, and Ajax, with the dying Patroclus in his arms. In the background you see a number of vestals of more than human size. These statues, seemingly alive and breathing in the magic light, cast over you a wondrous spell, holding you transfixed. The fact that a collection of such priceless works of art can be opened to the public freely, entrusted to that indistinctive reverence for things beautiful to which the lowest even but fool that I am, going off into aesthetics. Am I not in hell? Nay, laugh not, but pity me, for I could not join in your merriment. So great is the power of memory, it is upon me, dragging me back to scenes long dead and gone. Memories? What are they but my life? My all. But they are bare of enjoyment. They are as a cup of poison that would not kill but which fills you with horror and unutterable despair. It was a deep inward joy, lifting us, as it were, to that height where reality and enchantment meet, that Lily and I moved slowly through that hall of art. We hardly spoke, and when satisfaction for the moment had her fill, we escaped to the dimly lit arcades of the Palazzo Degli Uffizi. Their words would come. The charm was broken though its spell remained, how much we had to say to one another, how sweet, how tender was Lily's trustful voice, 
as her arm rested on me i seemed to hear the very beat of her heart and what delight to me to open her mind to the treasures she had seen to rouse new feelings of beauty in that waking soul so responsive and so pure when the shadows of night had deepened we would return home passing the stately cathedral stillness had settled spreading wings of peace maria del fiore they call this church and truly it is a fitting name florence means the flowering city and the sacred pile ends a very blossom of beauty in her midst it needed one hundred and sixty years for the cathedral's stately growth her cupola overlooks not only the whole of the town but the whole of the radiant valley the splendid belfry rich in sculpture lifting its graceful front to a height of three hundred feet not far from it stands that ancient baptistry with its wondrous gate of bronze which as michael angelo said was worthy of being the gate of paradise in front of it there is a rough-hewn stone bench there lily would often rest when tired by her wanderings there dante had sat dreaming about paradise and hell and thinking of beatrice one evening i asked lily which part of the city pleased her best the piazza is very beautiful she said but after all it is far off sort of beauty carrying one back to heathen times here i feel at home the very stones breathing christianity the difference is very strange at this place the living faith takes hold of me that roam where you will in the world you must return to the lord for content the world with all its glory cannot satisfy us as he can ah lily would i could believe like you i cried involuntarily pressing her hand till it must have pained her i scarcely knew it suppressing an exclamation she looked at me with earnest surprise saying uneasily oh philip don't as compared to you i am but an ignorant child yes lily but your childlike heart is the treasure i envy it is not an old blessed truth that to children is given what is hidden from the wise perhaps you can answer me a question lily it may be all plain to you though many of the great and learned make it a bewildering riddle what is being a christian dear philip what should it be but having christ in your heart these words of hers cut me to the soul how often had i felt that it was satan or at least an evil spirit that dwelt in me yes said lily as if to herself in quiet rapture that is it so simple and yet so great him alone i desire and having him i have father and mother and all the world he makes his abode with me that in him i may live and move and have my being he alone is my saviour my lord my all and softly she added after a while lord christ let me be true to thee till thou take me home a deep silence followed the memories of childhood pressed around me as if wrestling for my heart i was moved unutterably moved i felt as though the tears were rising to my eyes and hushing all other feelings the one thought took shape she is the angel that has led thee back to god but dearest philip said lily after a long pause that question could not have come from your heart i do not understand you i made some reply scarcely knowing what i said i felt her arm trembling within mine she stopped short we were standing in front of one of those little madonnas illuminated by a lamp let me look you in the face she said i felt as if some stranger were speaking to me 
No, I am sure. It is your own self. You could never change. And she laughed at her own foolish fancy, as she called it. Lily's laughter, at any time, as bright as music to my ears, broke the evil spell. I felt light-hearted again. The shadow had vanished before the health-giving sun. Never to you, I cried, drawing her close, and you are own little friend, so good, so true, intended to be a blessing to me in life and in death. I have met her again. I have met Annie. She sat apart, strangely occupied. Her long hair fell about her. She was taking little shells and bits of reeds out of the dripping tresses. Her slight garment had slipped from her shoulder. Oh, horror! I saw the brand of shame disfiguring the snowy skin. It was a red mark as blood, and the conscience of blood guiltiness raised its voice in my soul. As an open page, her heart lay revealed to my sight. Shame and despair dwelt therein, but her life's history was not written there. Her face, once so lovely, now so degraded, bore the traces of it, and with the brand upon her shoulder ended the terrible account. Her fault, at first, was but this, that she loved me too fondly, trusted me too foolishly. It was I who had wronged her, ruined her in return for that love. She had perished in the torrent of sin, carried from shame to shame, from despair to despair, sinking at last in a watery grave. The knowledge of it was as a fire consuming my heart. I stood gazing, unable to turn away my eyes, though the sight should kill me. But suddenly I felt as if my soul were sent asunder. Light as a bursting flame flashed through me, leaving me trembling, a chill chasing the glow. A horrible thought had possessed me. Those features, of whom did they remind me? Fearful conviction. Martin resembled Annie was as like her as a son may be like his mother. Had not Martin's mother, moreover, been a strolling actress who had drowned herself, and Martin's secret, that secret which should make all plain between us, reconcile us? Was this it? Yes, yes, I could doubt not. Then Martin was her child, and mine, and I had ruined not only her, but him, my child, my son. This, then, was the reason why the boy had fascinated me so strangely. I had seen myself in him. That is why I loved him, to passion almost, in spite of his wild and wayward temper. This wild, I, evil nature, was my own. It was thus that God punished me in him. Is it not written that he visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation? It is terrible, and the worst is this. Not the mother only, but my own child. The night of madness is not known in hell, else that hour must have plunged me into it. But the doubt remained. I must have it solved at any cost. I hastened towards her, but she, at my first movement, lifted her eyes, saw me, and fled, horror winging her feet. She was gone. Oh, for mountains to cover me, to hide me, I wailed in anguish. But there is no hiding in hell not a corner where in unseen solitude one might wrestle with one's grief. I have never yet succeeded in writing a letter at one sitting. I take pen and paper as the longing seizes me, and jot down what specially occupies my mind, the thoughts that assail it. Then turn away, 
to continue some other time at longer or shorter interval. I never write unless some inward necessity prompts me, yet if I did not somehow court that necessity, I do not think I ever should write. This will partly explain why these letters are no continuous account, but broken pictures only, a true mirror of myself, who am but a wreck now, shattered and undone. I remember that of all days I dislike Sunday most. On that day I used to dine at my mother's, and, what I thought worse, was expected to accompany her to church. I say worse, not because I disliked hearing sermons, but because I was never sure that some word might not rouse unpleasant sensations within me, followed by thoughts which I preferred keeping in memory's tomb, rather than let them riot with fear and regret. In the hubbub of daily life, it is easy to keep down serious thoughts, but on Sundays and at church they would be heard, making me feel that I had missed my true destiny, that I was not what I should have been. What was the use of such thoughts, since no man can undo his past? But worst of all were communion Sundays, for my mother would have me attend. She was so very careful of proprieties, and I did not like to grieve her. So I went, feeling all the time as though I were being dragged to the pillory. Bad as I was, I was no scoffer. I felt there was something holy, and that I had no part in it. I would far rather not have partaken. The service was positively painful to me. I tried to go through it unconcerned, but this was a case of the spirit being stronger than the flesh. I knew what I was about. It took me several days to get over the uneasiness created in my mind. I would shake off impressions, find myself again, as I called it, in a whirl of amusement. The memory of one of these Sundays is present with me. And why? I see a slender girl in the bloom of youth, her beauty transfigured to something of unearthly luster, uplifted to the spiritual. I see her, the fair head drooping, the silky wealth of her hair falling about her as a veil. Here is a higher loveliness than a mere regularity of features, and there is that in her eye which keeps you a prisoner to something above beyond. That deep gaze of hers is all worship, all adoration. It is herself, her soul. But mere is more. That smile of hers is a ray of light. You cannot tell whether it hovers on her lips, merely or shines from her eyes. It is there, as a beam from heaven lighting up her face. That was Lily in her sixteenth year. She too is about to take the sacrament. She does not do so lightly. I judge from the blushes on her face, from the heaving of her tender form. Yes, she too is uneasy, approaching tremblingly, but how different from me. It was her first communion. I had risen early against my want. The disquietude of my mind would not let me rest. Somehow my heart would beat. I set about dressing. What evil doer was that looking at me from the glass? I was quite unhinged and hastened downstairs. In the breakfast room I met Lily. She was alone and rather pale. What is it, my child? I said. Are you not well? She smiled. Ah, that smile. It used to be my heaven. But woe is me that I thought not of a higher heaven, for now I am left desolate of either. Yes, quite well, she said gently, and she went to fetch my mother. I stood lost in thought. The evident emotion in which I had surprised her was a riddle to be solved. 
It was always a delight to me to try and understand Lily's deepest being, and the attempt at the present moment was doubly welcome. I preferred reading her heart to looking into mine. My eye presently fell upon a little book lying on the table. I glanced at it, and lo, it explained the mystery. This is what I read. In the sacrament of the Lord's table, the Savior gives himself to the believing soul. It is a holy communion, blessed beyond utterance. The love of my earthly bride and bridegroom is a poor human type. Christ is the heavenly bridegroom, and the believer's heart the bride. The love that unties them is unspeakable, filling the soul with a foretaste of heaven's perfect bliss. Now I understood or at least guessed, what was passing in Lily. Her soul was moved as the soul of a bride at the nearness of the bridegroom to whom she is willing to belong. She had always loved her Savior, but a new love was upon her. Never had she been so happy, and never so full of disquietude. She longs for him, but is afraid. She stands trembling, yet knows she is safe with the lover of her soul, and to him alone will she give herself. You have heard of the gardens of Jericho. At any rate, you have read of the lilies in the field, which toil not and do not spin, and yet are more beautiful than Solomon in his glory. Lily and I, we used to watch these lilies growing in the valley of Jericho. Lily, the fairest one of her sisters. She told me a story one evening as we walked amid the flowers. I never know whence she had her stories. I often felt as though a higher being spoke through her even God himself, and I would listen with a kind of devotion, never questioning her words, as though they were a revelation. Even now her musical accents tremble in my ear, as I recall the story she then told me. A man lay dying. The world vanished from his sight, as he was left alone with the question, Whither art thou going? That question filling him with fear and trembling. He lay writhing on his bed of agony, when suddenly he beheld ten shapes closing him in cold and pitiless god's holy commandments and one after another they lifted up their voice at first saying unhappy man how many gods hast thou allowed to enter into thy sinful heart the second how many idols hast thou let set up in his stead the third how often hast thou taken the name of the lord thy god in vain the fourth how hast thou kept the sabbath day and caused others to keep it the fifth how hast thou honored thy father and mother and those that were set in authority over thee the sixth how hast thou acted by thy brother doing unto him as thou wouldst he should do unto thee and on they went the ten of them each with their voice of judgment confounding his soul and the dying man anguished and hopeless had not a word to say. He felt convicted, and he knew he was lost. At last he cried despairingly, I know I have sinned, but can you not leave me to die in peace? And they made answer, We cannot leave thee, unless one will take our place, to whom you shall yield yourself body and soul to all, eternity, abiding by his judgment. Will you do that? The sick man considered. He was afraid of the one even, and his heart, beating feebly, shook with fear. Yet at last he said, I would rather have the one judge me, since I cannot answer you ten. And behold, at his word, the dread accusers vanished, and there appeared in the stead one holy and compassionate, 
just and forgiving. And the dying sinner looked at him. Death had a hold of him already, but he felt the breath of life. He remembered all at once what in far-off days he had heard of one dying for many, recalling the holy lessons of his childhood at his mother's knee, when she told him of the Lord that is mighty to save. He had forgotten it, living a life of folly and of sin. But it was coming back to him even now, and looking again, behold, he knew him that stood by his side. And faith gathered strength, a smile of blessed trust lighting up his face, and with dying lips he cried, Let me be thine, Lord, thine only, now and forever. Have mercy on me, O Christ, and redeem my spirit. He sank in death, but peace had been given him. End of letter 16. Read by Elijah Fisher. Thank you for listening, and if you like this, please subscribe and consider liking my Facebook page and joining my group, Jesus Answers Prayer. May God bless your day.